Welcome back for more from our workshop in the 2021 NICE project. But before we move on to our selective passage, I wanted to just talk a little bit more about Charlotte Perkins Gilman, the racist, because we can't, um, how do I want to say this? We can't avoid uh, some of the difficult things that sometimes we run across when we pick books, works that are from a different time period. Um, and especially we can't avoid things that might be rather unpleasant. So Gilman herself was uh, the great niece of abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe, but she was a racist. And here I've, I've created this image. Um, I wanted to give this quote to you. This is something that she wrote about black Americans in 1909, and this was published in the American Journal of Sociology. We have to consider the unavoidable presence of a large body of aliens of a race widely dissimilar and in many respects inferior, whose present status is to us a social injury. I mean, this is pretty horrible, mm -hmm. you know? And we always have to say at the outset that we try to confront, whether it's in the, the text of a book we're looking at or in the life of the author of the books that we're looking at, we always try to confront these issues and um, deal with them and be honest about them. And so as much as I love the yellow wallpaper, some of this is very hard um, and very distressing. Uh, she also said in the same article, the problem is this, Given in the same country, race A progressed in social evolution, say, to status 10, and race B progressed in social evolution, say, to status 4. Given that race B in its present condition does not develop fast enough to suit race A. Question, how can race A best and most quickly promote the development of race B? Now, I have to say, the given given, those are so obnoxious and horrific. The question, how can one race best and most quickly promote the development of race B, might be, you might think, well, at least she's trying to help people. Well, this was her solution. Her solution was that all blacks beneath a certain grade of citizenship, those who were not decent, self-supporting, and progressive, should be taken hold of by the state. Gilman called this enlistment, not enslavement. Her system required the enforced labor of black Americans, men, women, and children. The enlisted would receive a wage only after the cost of the labor program was covered. And I have to say that everything on my slide here that is boldface and italics is quotes directly from the article. So that is rather unpleasant to think about too. My final uh, thought on Gilman the racist is that she did believe old stock Americans of British colonial descent were giving up their country to immigrants. She said immigrants were diluting the nation's reproductive purity. During a trip to London, when asked about her stance on immigration, Gilman fa famously quipped, I am Anglo-Saxon before everything. So. There you have some rather unpleasant uh, things to think about. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, in terms of uh, we always try to talk a little bit about the author. So, you know, when we're, we're talking about the book and thinking about these images on racism, I have to ask, you know, 
I, I have to ask you guys, do you feel that Gilman's racist notions affect your reading of the yellow wallpaper? But, you know, it's the same old question we always ask. Does the author's life add or detract from the story? And if so, how? So I've talked enough for a while. I want to open up the floor to some other thoughts and voices. Sarah E., I know you had some thoughts on this. You want to start us off? Sure, I will absolutely start us off. Yeah, um, when I first read Yellow Wallpaper, I had no idea of the, the racist thoughts that the author had. Um, and I say that's such a shame because I feel that that limits which oppressed groups can relate to the story freely. Yeah. Um, you know, if Gilman weren't such a racist, I think that anyone struggling to free themselves from some type of system of oppression including black people would see themselves, you know, as, as being, they could relate to that woman who was caught in that wallpaper. Yeah. Um, and the idea of that she's being choked, she sees these bulbous heads that are being strangled. That reminds me so much of um, the quote that became uh, so associated with the black lives matter movement related to George Floyd, the, I can't breathe. Oh, yeah. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. So now I am not a black person. I am a white chick. And so doubtless, there is a black reader listening who is, can absolutely still relate to the story. They subscribe to death of the author. It does not matter her background and they can still relate. But doubtless that there is a, another unique black reader who this is a barrier. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me... Oh, probably three, four years ago now, uh, we brought in a um, guest speaker, a professor who talked about the modern definition of feminism. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, as she described it, is the sound coming across the canvas? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, she brought up, up the idea that feminism in a modern sense is really standing up for any marginalized group. And I love that thought in theory. It definitely doesn't work for Gilman, but she's not modern. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that it doesn't work for every feminist today. Like, you know, a, a Karen might claim to be a feminist and, you know, call the cops on somebody for being black and barbecuing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a turf, the trans exclusionary radical feminist, you know, they exclude. So what, what I really think, though, my, my point is here is that I think it's a shame that there is this background because I feel like that can hold back how relevant the story might be to a wide group of people. Yes, I, I agree with you. And um, I want to hear from everybody else, but I do want to say it is so odd for Sarah E. and myself to have chosen a book that is kind of iconic as a piece of feminist literature and then, you know, to have to present it as being by an author who was a racist. It's just, you know, the, the feminist racist is not one of our normal, you know, that's not an author we usually have to talk about. So it, we had to bring it up. So Deborah, Chris, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share before we move on to the selected passage? Well, the whole thing about the racist stuff is just, it's it it's all it's a whole other layer on the onion that I I wasn't planning on entering into. Um, my own history with the book is, um, you know, I had first read Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the seventies. I was one of those brawless feminists, <laughs> and and every one of us 
had that book on our bookshelves mm -hmm. and we spoke in, you know, yellow wallpaper analogies. We mm -hmm. used the yellow wallpaper as an analogy for different kinds of oppression. So that she, she gave us a language and she gave us a shared story mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in our um, fist clenching and placard carrying days. And, and I left it at that. Mm -hmm. um, but my own history with it is as I grew and, and uh, tried to become wiser and learn other things. I, I have read the book three other times since that era, since, since that the seventies, right. it was the, the, the icon, every mm -hmm. feminist had to have read it in order. It was kind of like a, a rite of passage to know Charlotte Perkins Gilman's work and, you know, hate men and what they did to them and how they were oppressive. And this is just another example of, and, you know, she can break free and you don't blame her insanity because, you know, it was, it was her, it was her freedom. And I mean, all of that that went yeah. with it, but, I found that over the decades, as I would revisit this book, um, I, I really tried to read it differently by the eyes of the person I was at that time. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, when I was you know, in the beginning of you know, raising children and you know, read it one night you know, with a glass of wine and reading it and trying to understand the way of the world and trying to figure out how I wanted to raise my children and, you know, the whole thing about equality and you can be who you want to be and believe in what you want to believe. Um, it was interesting that in that rereading it, revisiting it, I was, I found myself to be, become purposefully intentional on taking um, her husband's point of view. At that time, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, you know, he was, he and Dr. Mitchell were doing the best that they thought that they could do at that time. You know, when you, when you think about today, people go to spas mm -hmm. to rest. And so, you know, so they, so they had this opportunity to stay at a friend's home in, in the woods and away from society and away from the hustle and bustle and, and responsibilities and everything. And during that particular revisiting with the book, I, I, I didn't hold him to be such a monster, either him or, or Dr. Mitchell, to be such a monster because they, they felt that they were doing what best they could for this person. And, well, and that is why so it's important to remember when it's written, you know, 1890. Yeah, definitely. When it was but that's, but what you're and saying so is to, I had to call my jets a little bit, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and not be so feminist and, you know, fist shaking and, and the whole bit about it and say, you know, no, wait a minute. <laughs> There's another side to this story. And then the third reading that I came up when I came across this is the point that you had made. And, and this is maybe where the, your whole thing about racism all comes into play. It, she wasn't purposefully, you know, fisting up saying, I'm a racist. I don't know. Did they even have the term back then? I mean, they had what they had, what they had, what they had at that. I, time. I think by 1892 and, and when she was writing for the uh, American sociology, there was journal, still a difference in, because 
cultures didn't understand cultures. And, and I know that her system of belief, you know, was of that time. So in my third reading of this book, um, I, w- I was seeing it as a voice comparable to, you know, the brawless feminists of the 70s. I was seeing it as a voice of uh, the oppressed, no matter if it's sex, skin color, whatever, that there is this story of oppression and, it, and you know, there were these people that played a part in keeping this person oppressed, how this person faced this oppression and how this person resolved the oppression, whether it's, you know, like I said, skin, label, sex, religious belief, no matter what it is. So I saw it more as a, uh, a formula. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then this last reading, since when you chose it as uh, a piece for nice, when I was reading it, since I had grown through uh, the rereadings and my relationship with this book and these three different ways of, of taking it in, this fourth time as a part of this project, I was looking at it more as a piece of literature. Mm-hmm. I was looking at it more as a piece of language and how she relied on the language and how she drew me in as mm-hmm. a reader and how I was taken into the story, you know, the story come what may, mm-hmm. but um, I, I looked at it more as maybe it was the English teacher in me. <laughs> You look more at structure. That, that took, it on, took it on this in this way. So, I have read this this same book, and it's been four different books all at once. Yeah. And um, as far as a, an an art piece, <laughs> I'm gonna have to flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Which which eyes do I want to? Sure. To? So well, that's that's one I, of the I, reasons. That, that is my relationship with this book and I'm not going to, you know, I mean, that's where it is. And I'm sure that if there's a fifth reading of it on down the line, when I get a little bit wiser and have more experiences under my belt, I will probably read it even differently yes. at that time. Well, and I think that's so, what one of the goals of our project is, first of all, everybody who, you know, participates in any way, even if they're, they, we never see them, even if we, they're not in workshops, we never hear from them, but they are reading the books at home and revisiting them. They have their own journeys, just like you have told us. Um, and, and I have my own journey. Sarah E has her own journey. I, you know, I, I, I think the difference between when this came out in 1892 to what you experienced in the 70s, which was, you know, the first wave of, or the second wave, really, of, of feminism in America, you know, that's a, that's a huge difference in the audience that was reading this book from the time it was published to the time in the 70s and even further into today. I will have to say one thing about uh, the, you know, bringing up Charlotte Perkins Gilman as being racist. She was racist. She was a self-acknowledged racist. Her the title of her article in the American Journal of Sociology in 1909. I mean, this isn't we're not talking about before the Civil War. I mean, this is 1909 was the title was a suggestion on the Negro problem. Now, you know, that title alone is self-admitting that she sees 
a Negro problem. So she was not um, in with the abolitionists of her her uh, great aunt, Harriet Beecher Stowe. She didn't believe in the equality of black Americans to white Americans. And that, you know, I, I presented snippets of what is known about her as a racist. So I encourage anybody who wants to delve more into her personal life, whether it's her feminist theories and her work with feminist organizations or further into reading more about what she had to say about race and different things like that to go ahead. I just wanted to present a little bit because I felt obligated. We're going to be talking about Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan of the Apes and Edgar Rice Burroughs is our counterpoint to Charlotte Perkins Gilman. He's the male that who's, is, he's very prejudiced and racist and we're going to have to deal with that. Join us next time as we continue with our workshop discussion for the 2021 Night project.